chapter 5, we're going to start there again. How many of you love the book of Romans? We're going to read again we, this morning, those of you who were here. This is the same passage, and we're just going to use this as our launching point to talk about hope. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 5, it reads, Therefore, being justified by faith. How are we justified? By faith. Justified means to be made just, to be made right. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that God is not angry with us. Okay, see, you don't get that. See, if you really understood that, you get real excited at the notion knowing that God's not angry with you because doesn't the enemy sit on your shoulder telling you how displeased God is with you? Because of your weakness and your frailty, do you know that God already knows every mistake you're yet to make? It's going to catch you and I off guard, but He already knows. Come on. We are at peace with God. God is not angry. All of His wrath was exhausted upon His Son at Calvary. That's good news there, folks. You're going to have to chew on that for a while. You don't get that yet because that's that's really exciting. Verse 2, By whom also we have access... (laughs) How many of you like being that person that has the, you know, you're just in the right place? People know you, right? You've got the VIP card. What is the VIP card? It gets you backstage. See, we have access. By whom? By who? Jesus. We have access by faith into His grace, His unmerited favor, wherein we stand. That word stand means that we are fixed there and nothing can move us. So you're going to have to get the tape because you're not getting it the first time. You're just, nothing can move you. By your faith in Jesus Christ, you are fixed in His grace. Oh, man. This is worth preaching over and over again until we get it. And rejoice. What are we supposed to do while we're fixed in His grace? Come on. Um, not just Joyce. <laughs> See, a lot of us get Joyce in the Lord always. No, God said rejoice. Do it over and over again. <laughs> I love it. And we're to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, what you've experienced so far is the glory of God, but it is not the full glory of God. We haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg. Moses, God when he created the earth, he made sure to take his finger and carve out a notch in the rock because God knew he had an appointment with a guy named Moses some thousands of years later. And Moses went, and he, God tucked him in there and said, Now don't you come out until I tell you to. But when I do, you're going to see something that you never saw before. The Bible says that Moses saw the hindermost parts of the glory of God. Have you ever, you look directly into the light, it can hurt your eyes, but if you look away, you'll see that there's this diminishing glory. Well, as the glory and the presence of God walk by, Moses just got to look at the tail end of his glory. We are going to see him and know him as he is. Amen? We are to re- hope in the glory of God, the full manifestation of who he is. That's our hope. We haven't seen anything yet, folks. If you like what you have so far, you haven't seen anything yet. Preached a message a few weeks back called You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Baby, I'm sorry. I just had to do that. You just ain't seen nothing yet. 
Verse 3, and not only so, but we glory in what? Tribulations. How in the world can you glory in tribulation? That's just stupid. It is to the carnal mind. It is to somebody that doesn't have hope. But when you've got hope fixed on something other than this life, I'm telling you, you'll glory in tribulations. But we glory in tribulations also because, I'm throwing that word in there, knowing that the tribulation works patience. (laughs) See, the tribulation works patience. And patience, experience. And experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. The hope that God gives doesn't make anyone ashamed. How many of you have ever hoped for something? You really believed, and then you were disappointed. Maybe you even told people, I'm believing, I put my faith in this person, I put my faith in this job, I put my faith in something, and then it didn't come through. How did you feel? Feel a little embarrassed? Feel a little bit ashamed? The Bible says you're not going to be put to shame here. You put your hope in this, you will not be let down. You don't have to worry. See, one of the things about hope is that there's a personal investment involved with hope. And we're going to get into that a little more. But there is an investment. There's an investment of your emotional and even physical energy to really work hope in your life. We talked a little bit. This is a little bit of repeat for those of you here this morning. But we want to, wanted to make it uh, known that, it is, first of all, hope is not easy to find. It's not a commodity that this world deals in. We pulled up, I went online today and I pulled up three news sources and I pulled up three uh, of their headlines, their bylines from each of these news sources. And there was not a bit of good news in any of it. Not a bit of good news. The media in this world does not peddle hope. This world peddles hopelessness. This world wants to bring you down. Why, you say, well, why would they do that? People don't realize that they are not in God, that they are under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. They don't realize that the things that they're doing that sell newspapers, and, and I'm not sure why, except they say that bad news loves company. They don't know why they do this, but they're under the influence of this world. Why is it? Would you buy newspapers if they were telling you good news? What about single mother of four? Gets up every day and goes to work. Works two jobs. Her kids are all in school, have never been in trouble. How many of you would buy that newspaper? I'd buy that newspaper. I would subscribe. Yeah, Glenda said she'd frame it. (laughs) That's true. Hey, but the world doesn't function or doesn't operate in good news. The world does not offer hope. The hope that it offers is temporal. The hope that it offers is with limits. The hope that it offers is not God's hope. It is a hope that can make you ashamed. You can put, how many of you put an investment in something and have that investment fall through and you feel let down? God says that the hope that we put in Him will never make us ashamed. You will never have hope pushed to the forefront of your consciousness in this world. We have to turn to something other than this world to find hope. You need to write that down. We need to turn to something other than this world to find hope. You will not find hope in the pleasures of this world. You will not find peace 
in the pleasures of this world. We will never be satisfied with anything that this world provides. Now, I haven't done a lot of things. I've not done drugs and alcohol and, and a lot of those kind of things. And, and that's, that's not to say anything other than the fact that I haven't tried them. But I've tried some fun stuff. I, I've been active in my life. I've gotten to do... I love athletic things. I love thrill. I love adrenaline. <laughs> I did anyway. Now my body's getting a little too old for that. But, but I love that kind of stuff. I, I do. We did go to um, Marriott's Great America this week while my mom and daughter were here. And, and uh, some of those rides are not quite as thrilling as they used to be. <laughs> Thrill wasn't what I was thinking as I got off. Spill <laughs> was what I was thinking. <laughs> something, something about the body as it ages that doesn't quite handle... That stuff like it used to. My kids were having a great time. I've tried fun things. I've tried some real thrills. I've seen, I, I talk about this, I know, every now and then, but I've seen sunsets. I, I've been on top. I'll never forget being at the top of Kirkwood on the, um, I forget now what they call that run, but there's a, it's, it's the tallest peak in the area, and just standing there looking and 360 degrees, and I could see, it seemed as far as, it was a beautiful day, I will never forget, I went with a buddy of mine skiing up there, and it seemed like you could see forever, it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen, you could see all the mountaintops and all the peaks, it seemed like you could see in every direction, I've seen the, some amazing things, I've, I've enjoyed, I've watched my children being born, the key word there is watched, <laughs> we would have had one and that would have been it if it had been left to me. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But thank God, women give birth to children. Or we would have not fulfilled that great command to f- fulfill the earth. Because I am not men enough to be a woman. I just got to tell you. I'm, I admit that proudly. But I've seen my children born. That's an amazing miracle. I've watched him grow. I've seen God do what only God can do. I've experienced some wonderful things. I shouldn't have included that, but that was just poured out of me. But the things in this world never compare to those things that I'm talking about, the things that God can do. See, folks, here's what the enemy wants us to do. The enemy wants our attention to be directed away from heaven. Now, this morning I used an acronym for the word hope. And it was for H, it was holding onto the promise expectantly. H-O-P-E. Holding onto promise expectantly. And the Bible's definition of hope is this, that there is expectation attached to it. It's not an empty hope. And we talked about how people buy lottery tickets and they have a hope that they'll win, but in reality they know they're probably not. They're hopeful, but they don't really expect it. And that's a good expectation. It's reasonable because the odds are... A billion to one, or whatever it is that you're going to win. But true biblical hope, the kind of hope that gives you life, has an expectation attached to it. And to be able to hold on to our hope and the promises of God expectantly, in other words, you're going to the mailbox every day and you're looking for that thing to come. You never stop. And after I left the service today, I thought about a picture of what that kind of hope looks like. And that that kind of hope is typified in the very person of God in the parable of the... Um, prodigal, thank you, 
prodigal son. Because the Bible says that the father went out every day and he looked. Every day the father went out to the gate and he looked. He never stopped. The whole time that son was out there getting his fill of sin, the father went to the gate every day and looked down that road for his son to return. That's true hope. That's the kind of hope that God has. So to have the kind of hope that, to have true hope, we have to have an expectation that doesn't lose its strength. And how do we do that? We talked about this. In the promise is only as good as the promise giver. We need to know. We need to get to know intimately our God. It's not enough to see what God's doing in your pastor or some friend. You need to have some testimonies. You need to have encounters with God. You need to get in His presence. You need to get in His Word. You need to learn His voice for yourself. I am very concerned about the church today. There are so many who said, well, I don't know the voice of God. Jesus plainly said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and I know them and they will not follow anyone else. So the context is this. The cure for straying and being led astray by other false doctrine, by other false hopes, is to know the voice of God. And it starts with this book. Amen? It starts with this book. Now listen, I'm going to say something that God was talking to me about, and I was really concerned about it until I heard another man of God provide a better explanation. But as I was praying right there in that spot, and I was praying because God has given a vision for me, uh, or He's brought me into His vision, rather, to unify the body of Christ in our time, especially in our city. And something had happened, and it was, like, it was just like I saw, God, it's impossible. Was this really you that spoke this to me? And um, anyway, I lost my train of thought. just went out the window. Mm, it was good, too. You should, you should have been there. It was, it was really good. I'm going to go on. We need hope that will not fade. It has got to be bound on the character of the promise giver. We need to know Him. You need to pursue Him. You get to know, need to know His voice. God will speak to you directly. See, and I don't want to be, appear to be critical, but this is a reality. It seems like the Catholic Church has always wanted you to have to go through them to get to God. They don't want you reading your Bible. They don't want you going direct. They want you to come to that man to get to God. God never intended that. You say, okay, that's a Catholic church. We Protestants got it together. No, we don't. We're just as guilty of creating dependence upon this charismatic pastor, this guy who's got all the gifts, this guy who's got all the power, and we want that. We, we would never say it out loud, but we want that because we want you to come to church. But you're coming for the wrong reason. If you put your hope in a man, you're going to get what a man can get you. And that's disappointment. But if you put your hope in God because you know Him personally, there's nothing I can do that will knock you off stride. In fact, you'll help me when I get off track. You'll come to me and say, Hey, Pastor, you got it wrong there. And you won't come ready to lop my head off. You'll come to restore me. And that's because you know God. The hope that can be held on to with true expectation, an unwaning, an unfading expectation, is hope that is based on your knowledge of the promise giver, God Himself. Now tonight we're going to elaborate on the hope a little differently. And I didn't plan on this, but God gave me another um, 
another acronym for hope. And it was, when we'll talk about, we're going to talk about how hope needs an object. It needs a target. It needs a focal point. What is that focal point? Heaven over uh, I totally blank and I didn't write a heaven over heaven over this present earth. Heaven over this present earth. There is nothing in this earth now that's here that will give us hope. If you focus on anything here, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've counted on that job. You got the promotion. You got the promotion. Now, if you, if you do it thinking that somehow that promotion is going to provide you what you need, you're going to be disappointed. You get that job. You've been, you've been praying for it even. I got the job. But if your hope is in the job, then you're going to be disappointed. We need to have our hope on the right thing. First of all, let's talk about what the English language defines as hope. We talked about this today. It's to want something to happen or be true or think that it could happen or be true. The Bible says that hope is something you desire with an expectation that it will happen. Big difference. The world's definition of hope is just to hope that it will happen. God's hope is that you actually expect that it will. Now, I say this, I'm saying it a lot, but you've got to catch this. You've got to actually believe that you're going to get what you have your hope in. How can you have that powerful an expectation? Well, you've got to know God. You've got to know His character. And then, you've got to have a focal point. You've got to have something to attach that hope to. Now, here's what the Wikipedia said about hope. It said, hope is an optimistic attitude of mind based on an expectation of positive outcomes related to events and circumstances in one life, in one's life, or the world at large. As a verb, it def- its definitions include expect with confidence and to cherish a desire with anticipation. I really like that. To cherish a desire. Just stew on that for a minute. Do you cherish the promises of God? Do you cherish the things that God said He has provided for you through his son Jesus? Cherish is a powerful word. I always I heard somebody sometime, and I can't shake it, but to cherish is to like to cup your wife or your husband's face in your hands and to just to love them. You just love to look. You like getting right there up close and personal. You love them. You cherish them. You don't let it go. When you're away from them, you think about it, you cherish them. It never dies. Do we have that kind of Do we have that kind of love for the promises of God? Do we have that kind of love for the promise giver? In psychology, Dr. Barbara L. Fredrickson says this, Hope comes into its own when crisis looms, opening us to new creative possibilities. With great need comes an unusually wide range of ideas, as well as such positive emotions as happiness and joy, courage and empowerment, drawn from four different areas of oneself, the cognitive, psychological, social, or physical. C.R. Snyder, another psychologist, says that hope linked hope to the existence of a goal, combined with a determined plan for reaching that goal. Or, in other words, there's a personal investment involved in hope. Hope is not passive. 
Hope is not accidental. This is what the world has found about hope. Alfred Adler and Ernest Bloch, who's a sociologist, they both share this common idea, and they stress that the link between hope and mental willpower, as well as the need, stress the link, rather, between hope and mental willpower. There's a connection between having a hope and a determination, willpower of the mind, as well as the need for realistic perception of goals. In other words, something that you believe can actually happen. I can see how that it can happen. Arguing that the difference between hope and optimism was that hope included practical pathways to an improved future. So what are they talking about? Hope is not, as I said, it is not passive. Hope takes work. Hope takes a focus. See, hope is a verb. We already covered that. But hope is a verb. Hope is something that is placed on something. It's in your power. Hope, therefore, is a choice. Hope is not, if, you, if we don't get this, we can be hopeless in a hurry. If we think that hope is something that comes and goes and it's outside of our control, then we're going to be hopeless. Because the enemy, remember, this world does not function, does not operate in the arena of hope. Only in Christ will you find hope. Hope needs an object. It needs a focal point. Hope requires a personal investment, and hope needs to be real, a real possibility. Well, what are we to hope in? The first thing we must recognize is that uh, with that hope is a choice and that we can choose to be hopeful. We can choose to be, uh, it's our decision to be hopeful and it's in our power to be hopeful. One must find something that is of true intrinsic worth along with the belief that it is attainable. Hope doesn't come if you don't believe that it's really what you're hoping for can really be had. That's hopeless. See, a lot of people in the church today come to church because there's something inside them that tells them, you know, there's something to this. I don't want to go to hell if there is such a thing. And if there is a heaven, I want to go there. There's a lot of people who are in church today that that's as deep as their experience and their faith goes. I just don't want to go to hell if there is one. And if there is a heaven, I do want to go there. Does that sound very convinced? Does that sound very committed? No, does it sound like they actually believe it? See, what I haven't seen in a while, on a grand scale and on a large scale in the church, is people whose hope is on the things that are beyond, in heaven. Paul said, you want to encourage each other? Encourage each other with these words. There's coming a day when the sound of the trumpet and the voice of an archangel is going to sound. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Then encourage each other with these words. I want to be around a people again who when we get together in a social situation, we're not spending our time talking about the movies and experiences we have in our life here. We find ourselves talking about our Lord. We talk about our hope. Oh, that's just foolish. Yeah, it is. But it's the foolishness of God that's going to give you a hope that will last forever. Foolishness of this world, or the foolishness of God, is enmity to this world. They hate it. They call the the truth of God foolishness. But the Bible also says that the foolishness of God is the preaching of the gospel which leads to salvation. Yeah, I'll be a fool for Christ. The Bible and His Word has changed me. It's changed me. I don't know what else to do. 
If there was no reality, if suddenly everything that I'd experienced in my life were to fade, I don't know what I would do. I have seen the power of God. I've tasted His glory, and nothing else will ever do. Nothing will ever do. I came and waited on the Lord for hours because I just wanted to be touched by His presence, and I didn't get what I was looking for. And as I sat up, I felt there was a song, and I went to the keyboard, and I just, it just wrote itself. But it's called, Nothing Else Will Do. It says, nothing else will do. Nothing else can satisfy my soul. No one else but you. Nothing else will do. Nothing. Have you tasted and seen? Are you ruined for anything in the world? Are you ruined for anything in the world? Or, or is it still this world provide you just enough pleasure that, you know, I can be happy as long as I've got... No, nothing in this world satisfies. Some of us are so afraid to lose our taste for the world that we let go of God. We're afraid for the things of this world to lose their pleasure. I think that's a natural progression for a maturing saint. Oh, but my grandparents, they were so boring. All they wanted to do was go to church. They'd sit around and read their Bible. I don't want to be like my grandparents. They were boring. Your grandparents had it right. They were living light. They weren't accumulating treasures here. They were building treasures in heaven. (laughs) They were ready to go. Bags were packed. Come on, Jesus. And just like Paul, they had this mindset that said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Christ. And if I die, I get Christ. (laughs) Here I'm going to pour out my life for Christ. There I'm going to receive Christ. That's a good place for hope. Are you satisfied with this world and its pleasures? Folks, we've got to watch out. The Bible says in these last days, over and over again throughout the New Testament, a common theme is that the love of many will wax cold. They will become, uh, they'll have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. They will walk away from their first love. They'll do good works, but they'll have lost their passion for God. This is the state of the church in these days. You're not above it. And if you think you're okay, you're not. That's not very hopeful. But it's true. Does a deceived person know that they're deceived? Hmm. No, they don't. They may be the only one who doesn't know it. Have you ever been around somebody that has it wrong and they're the only ones who think they got it right? And everybody around them knows they got it wrong? But they think they got it right? That's what it is to be deceived. I'm going to talk about another great prophet. How many of you remember Gomer Pyle? (laughs) Great man of God. I'll never forget on that show years ago. Okay. For those of you who remember, Gomer Pyle was the goofy guy who came from the mountains, talked real funny, but he had an incredible singing voice. He couldn't do anything right but sing. Right? Jim Neighbors. Now, his platoon sergeant was a guy named Sergeant Vince Carter. He was a rough, he was a perfect Marine. Loud, shouted, yelled at everybody, right? Well, they formed a glee club, a men's choral in the, on the Marine base there. 
And they would get together and sing, and it was beautiful. And, of course, they featured Jim Neighbors and his voice. But then Sergeant Carter found out about the glee club and said, Hey, I want to join. And so they said, Sure. Didn't know you could sing. Turns out, he couldn't. And all of a sudden, there was this one booming voice. That's the other thing about people who got it wrong. They're the loudest. Think about that for a minute. The world's got it wrong, and they're the loudest. We got it right, and we got our mouth shut. Okay, we'll just leave that alone, because that's meddling. So they'd practice, and everybody knew who the problem was. Sergeant could hear it, but he thought it was somebody else. Somebody else's problem. They didn't have the heart or the courage, really, to say that, you know, you can't sing. So they started hiding, having practices, hiding out, and of course, he would stumble across their practice and join in. But he thought everybody else was the problem. He was the problem. To be deceived is to be Sergeant Carter. You don't know you can't sing. You don't know you got it wrong. Folks, this world and its pleasures have a way of gaining a foothold on us as powerfully as sin. Say, what are you talking about? Jesus said this. And I've shared with all, many of you have heard that as I was going to lunch one day, this scripture went through my mind, and I quoted it in this way. I said, laying aside the sin and the waste that do so easily beset, and as I said that, the Holy Spirit said, nope, you got it wrong. I said, I know, I'm pretty sure I got it right. Laying aside the sin and the weight that, no, you got it wrong. So I went to lunch, had my Bible with me. I looked up the verse and I started to read it. Laying aside the weights and the sin that does so easily beset. And I said, I had it right. And he goes, nope, you had it wrong. So I read it again. Laying aside the weights and the sin that does so easily beset. I said, God, I'm pretty sure I had that right. And he goes, nope, you had it wrong. So I just sat there and I prayed and I said, God, I, I don't get it. I thought I had it right. And then he allowed me to repeat it without looking at the scripture again as it was in my head. In my head, I say, laying aside the sin and the weights. The scripture says, laying aside the weights and the sins. And I said, big deal. <laughs> I was indignant. I work for the government after all. Close enough. He said, do you think that I do anything without purpose? I said, of course not, God. He said, do you think that those words are placed there in some non-matter-of-fact way? That, I mean, it doesn't mean something? I said, no, it does mean something. He said, now read it, knowing that I intentionally inspired the writer to write, laying aside the weights and the sins. And then I begin to realize the reason why he did that. Because all of us who are Christians have taken care of the sin issues in our life. And we think we're all good. We think we're good because we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. <laughs> I don't drink anymore. I don't have sex outside of marriage anymore. I don't do drugs anymore. I don't talk behind people's backs anymore. I read the Bible. I go to church. Wow, 
you're pretty put together. Guess you can just skate. Nope. Because weights are things that entangle your feet. Laying aside the weights and the sin that do so easily beset. It means to trip you up. It means it's, it's like a snare. It's like a trap in front of you. If you're not heads up, you're going to get your feet tangled up in you, and it's going to impede your progress. You're going to think everything's all right, and you're not. You're going to be stuck. You're going to be bound. You will not be growing, and that's a dangerous place to be in. How many of you know that if your feet get snared and you get bound in a position where you can't move anymore, you're going to die? You're going to die. You've got to be moving. You've got to get up. If you stay on your face, if you stay bound, if you stay tripped up, you're going to die. So God said this, Daryl, weights are every bit as powerful as sin to separate us from Him. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? For all us comfortable believers. So, having a hope that will remain takes work. It takes an intentional, purposeful Plan. Remember what they said, that in order for hope to have meaning, you've got to have a personal investment in it. You've got to say, I'm going to be busy here. In order for me to have hope, I need, first of all, to have true promises, and then I've got to be committed to working those promises in my life. So, what is the main focal point of our hope? Well, Psalm 42.5, the first part, says it this way. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. That's your main focal point. God. See, that's the macro. And in business and in, and in collegiate or academic terms, they talk about things being on a macro level. That means the big picture. That means you get way out on a satellite and you look at earth way out there. You're looking at the big picture. Then there's the micro level where you get the microscope out and you look at the atomic world. You see things that you can't see with the naked eye. So it's talking about looking really up close and personal. We have this blessed opportunity to put our hope in this God. That is our macro view. God is the big picture. But then once you get into God, you've got to focus in. You've got to get into His Word, and you're going to find out that there's promises that He has for you. You're going to find out that He's... How many of you know that God is not a cosmic killjoy? He's not in the business of ruining your life or mine. If God says, thou shalt not, then don't. If God says, thou shalt, then do it. But what about the areas in between? Ah, that's where you get to choose. Did you know that there's more, and I'm going to use a word that I hate to use in the Bible, in relation to the Bible. Did you know there's more gray area in the Bible than there is thou shalt and thou shalt not? I could really get myself in trouble here. Let's just talk about alcohol for a minute. I would have loved it if God would have said, Thou shalt not drink alcohol. Wouldn't that have been easy? Thou, some of you are looking at me, don't you go here. <laughs> don't 
Don't you mess with me. There was a book years ago called Sipping Saints. Pick it up. Just saying, I'm not the first. You know what I'm talking about. This is just one of many issues. Wouldn't it have been easier if God would have just said, Thou shalt or thou shalt not? Instead, he just said, Don't be drunk on wine, wherein is excess. Well, what does that mean? The legal limit? I walk straight. I think if my wife ever got drunk, she'd actually walk straight. <laughs> it's an inside joke. <laughs> we were at Marriott's the other day, and she was, actually, it was my fault that time, but uh, <laughs> she was apologizing for, because she's in such a habit. She and her cousins, it's a Christopherson thing. They're all over the place. So what does it mean not to be drunk on wine? Paul, it, it didn't come right out and say, thou shalt not. Paul said something like, well, I'll not be under the control of anything. Well, at what point am I under control? What what does it mean to be drunk? And so the church is at a place. There are people who are totally taken in the alcohol thing. Personally, I'll let you know. You can probably ought to guess where I stand on this issue. Christians don't have any place drinking alcohol. That's my opinion. Why? Because the overwhelming teaching in the word regarding the use of alcohol is don't. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that in Proverbs, it says that kings should not drink or even look on the drink that is bubbling, which means a fermented drink. The Bible, what does the Bible call us? Tooth bifold ministry? Priest and kings. We're kings and priests in God. It's a new covenant. But he, wouldn't it have been easier if he just said, Thou shalt not drink? Now, there are a lot of people today who are drinking alcohol, and they're doing it with a clear conscience, and I believe that they can go to heaven. This is not a life or death issue. It's bigger than that. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. See, this God has left plenty of subject like this to our choice. Ooh, I hate that word. I hate that. Because as a pastor, I want to control your behavior. Look into my eyes. Wouldn't that be great? Because after all, I do know everything. Remember that deceit thing we were talking about earlier? Yeah. No, I don't know anything. What am I talking about here, folks? There is a place where we go after God. We discover, we want to know what His heart is. You know, when you're really in love, you're actually going to try and find out what the person you love wants and needs. You're going to find out what their, what their dreams are, and you're going to try and make them come true. My wife is here. I'm not going to say I'm doing that right. But that's what love does. Love serves its object. So for us to have a hope that is placed on God, there are plenty of places in our life where we need to discover what His mind is. What is it that He says? When God says, Thou shalt not, then don't. If God hints, Thou shalt not, then don't. If God says, Thou shalt do, but if 
God even hints that you should do. See, this is where we've missed it in the church. We're looking for black and white. We want, yeah, we want a rule. We want law. And Jesus said, I fulfilled law. Remember what Jesus said? In the law it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus said, in this new covenant that I'm bringing, if you even look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. And I haven't even touched her. I haven't even spoken to her. So which is, which is greater? Which has the greater responsibility? This new covenant we have gives us the opportunity to seek out, know the heart and the mind of God. This practice of seeking out and knowing the heart of God, we will find that He has promises for us. See, a lot of His promises are revealed as we deal with these areas of our life where we have to change the way we live in order to conform to what He hints at. See, there's a lot of places where God doesn't hint. He just comes right out and says it. Jesus, just go read the Beatitude. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Just read that. It's so totally opposed to our natural thinking. Blessed are they who mourn. It's You're happier when you're giving than when you're receiving. And if you believe that that's not true and that that, well, that's just natural. Yeah, just look at your kids. Have you ever once seen them manifesting naturally the gift of giving? No, I've seen the gift of mine! It's tearing the toy away from the other kid. That's the nature. What am I saying, folks? God has in His Word put places where we are to put our hope. We're to put our hope in His Word. Jesus said it this way. It's a matter of love. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll love the things that I love. You'll care about the things I care about. Well, you know, I, I just can't read the Bible because I don't understand it. You know what? The Bible says of itself that it is not discerned naturally. In other words, it's not a matter of your intellectual power or weakness. You just need to get it in you. My dad used to say, I don't understand how this steak keeps me alive, but I'm going to eat it. I don't understand how this pizza turns into energy and keeps me breathing. I'm going to eat it. Many of us say, well, I don't understand the Bible, so I'm not going to read it. And many of us are weak and emaciated. And we're constantly under the control of our flesh. And the reason why is because we are not ingesting the living Word of God. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. He said, I am the bread of life. John 1, 1, 1 through 14 says that He is the Word. He is the bread. He is the way. He is the life. And if we're going to have a hope that remains, a hope that will carry us until Jesus comes again, a hope that will transform our lives now so that the world will want what we've got, so they'll come and ask, what are you doing? We've got to get our hope fixed on things that are true. We've got to get our hope fixed on the promises of God. I'm going to quit there. Hope is a choice. Hope is in our power. And hope is only as good as the promises you place your hope in. And I, I just feel something here. Some of us have greater loyalties to our families, to our jobs, 
than we do to God. And we'll take scriptures to back it up. A man who doesn't provide for his children is worse than an infidel. While that is true, it doesn't mean that you should love your job and put your faith in it. His name is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. He's our provider. I'm supposed to train my children in the way they should go. And we'll take that and we'll take, well, that means I need to be committed to my family. Yes, but to train them in the way they should go. These are hard things to deal with, but if you want to find out what some people's gods are, just head out to baseball fields and football fields on the weekend. And we're guilty of that too. Culture sucks you in and says, hey, you got to do this. I know that that's a, a toe stepper right there, and it steps on my own toes. But it points to the fact, folks, that the world, there. see, it's not like it used to be. There are lines that are being drawn right now. There are lines that are being drawn. And they're innocent. They seem innocent. But they're the things that are the entanglements that God says that in time are as powerful as sin to destroy your relationship with me. Many of us don't have a hope in the Lord. That get, how many of you have seen, you, you know people who are hope, hopeful. They just, they're full of life and their focus is on God. Don't you love those people? Well, wouldn't you want to be one? Not just be around them? Let's be that person. It requires an investment of ourselves. And it requires a belief that it can happen. Put your hope in the Lord. Long for heaven. If you don't long for heaven, if you, if, I, there are people right now that's, that are in church and I've talked to them, and they, they say, I don't want Jesus to come. And I'm not here trying to, instead, if you feel that way, let me just challenge you to take that to the Lord. What does this world have? What God is it that you've encountered? What God saved you that you would hang on to anything here? Because the God that saved me has ruined me for anything else. Does that mean I don't enjoy things? Yeah. I enjoy some things a little too much. Simple things. Easy things. And I'm not going to start naming them because I can't handle the conviction right now. <laughs> I'm going to be real, but not that real. <laughs> I agree with Pam and the spirit that she had in that testimony tonight. God is stirring. God is stirring. Listen, folks, remember, Mary said it. I'm just grateful that God's mercies are new every day. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. His mercy. I'm not, every morning, I'm not getting what I deserve. And beyond that, God is right now at work because people are praying. And he's at work stirring the body of Christ. He's stirring you. You're here tonight, and God is challenging you to have a hope in the Lord, to have a focus on him, because hope requires focus. Hope is a choice. Hope requires a personal investment. You need to work it. 
heaven over this present earth. That's what we should fix our hope on. Why don't you just turn your hearts to the Lord right now?